Thanks for tuning into the second week of Mixed Methods. It's been so amazing to see the response to the first episode and really been such a pleasure to connect with so many research professionals. I'm also excited to report that our little Slack community of UX researchers is growing and gaining momentum. If you want to join the conversation, go to the community tab at mix-methods.org. And if you're looking for more content like this, check out Steve Portugal's Dollars to Donuts podcast. Here's today's episode. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sarah Duty. You guys might know her as the creator of the UX Notebook and so much more. Sarah has been working in the UX world now for over a decade, and we got together to discuss what she has learned about concept validation. So by that I mean what happens when you or someone that you work for has an idea and you're trying to decide if it's worth building it. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, I have an idea, now what? Here's Sarah. Okay, so yeah, I am Sarah Duty. And I am a user experience designer. Um, I work independently right now. Um, Normally I work with either half-time startups or the other half of my time I'm working with um, larger companies that are already launched and actually have data and users to be able to talk to. So it's cool to have that mix. And also it's interesting to have the mix of industries to work in and not be stuck just working on one type of product mm-hmm. um and i should clarify you know ux means so many things to so many different people yeah definitely so what i specifically do in ux even though i have a marketing and a visual design background um i have specialized in kind of i would say the experience design and strategy side of things so research user flows wireframes coming up with like the how and the why and the what of the product and then the visual designers and the developers come in. Um, so that's kind of where I've drawn the line in my career. I just know it's pointless for me to try and do anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. Just because that's what you found that you love the most? That's or? what, yeah, that's what I found that I'm really, really good at. But also working independently, even if I were to try and integrate visual design into what I do, the problem, it's really a logistics problem, a project ends up taking me you know, a really long time because I have to do the visual or do the experience design and then the visual design. And so no one can be parallel pathing. Whereas if a different visual designer were working on it, they could swoop in midway through the wireframe phase, let's say, and get started. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a disservice to the companies that I work with to try and do both because I know I'm going to slow them down. Yeah, you just don't get any of those asynchronous benefits. Yeah, so anyway, that's kind of where I I drew the line. Um, And I do a lot of teaching and um, writing and speaking and stuff like that. Sarah's writing is actually how I found out about her. Along with the UX Notebook, she's really active on a site called Medium. And she wrote an article on there called Why You Can't Afford to Skip User Research. It caught my eye when I was trying to figure out what the best way to test a new idea that myself and a few friends had. Here's an excerpt that stood out to me. One of the key reasons most products fail is because they did not set out to solve a problem. They started with a feature or an idea, but they didn't invest time to really dig into understanding the pain points of the people who have the problem. Um, and this resonated with me so much because I think anyone who's worked in a you know fast-paced startup product development environment understands or has had the experience of like, hey, here's a new feature or 
um, you know, just kind of being given a, pro a project to work on. Um, and even as someone who, you know, just has a lot of ideas, it's like you just want to get in and start building the thing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I need to build this. I have a week before someone else launches it. And, right. you know, and my startup is gone or whatever. So I think for me that really resonated. And I, I loved how you broke it up into these five stages, um, you know, of kind of the process for doing this research. You said identifying early adopters, validating your hypothesis, exploring underserved customers, discover workarounds, and then learning about competitor products. Yep. So I wanted to dig into that and also just like, you know, if you have any stories about like these different stages, mm -hmm. um, kind of get into that. So maybe let's start with identifying early adopters, both in, um, you know, a startup. You said you worked in startup uh, environments and then also these more established companies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's kind of talk about um, that stage. OK, let's do that. But I want to jump back to that quote that you read, that yeah, beginning totally. one. The idea that too many companies jump in, they have an idea and they spend a little bit of time maybe figuring out the problem and then they spend the bulk of their time focusing on the solution and the features. And I thought a lot about this because I see companies do this over and over where they will want to engage me. Actually, I just had a phone call with a guy that wants to work with me mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about his product. And he said, well, I said to him, you know, what's this about? And he proceeded to give me almost like a bulleted list of features. And I thought he was going to say, well, this group of people, I noticed they have this problem and here's like the side effects of this problem. And so I built this problem that does X, Y, Z to solve that problem. Instead, he went into this big bullet list of features and it was funny. In the middle of it, he said, I guess I need to do a better job at figuring out why people need this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Sometimes and just saying like, it out loud. Yes, you do, you know. So why do teams end up kind of getting into build mode too fast? I think... Whenever you start to see tangible stuff on a screen, it's almost like a false sense of security. And once you see that first landing page or that first feature working, it just snowballs and you want more and more and more. And then you end up just three weeks later or three months later having this product that has all these features. But if you had to explain it to someone, you wouldn't be able to because you didn't have that why or that problem statement, mm -hmm. um, which I kind of compare to like a thesis when you write an essay, when you're figuring out your problem through research and things, you need to come out of that with some type of thesis. And then every feature you build can either support that thesis. And if it doesn't, you probably shouldn't build it. Mm -hmm. So that's the long version, I guess, of the, um, you know, why teams seem to just run towards a solution yeah I mean and I, I love that call out because I think you know you have these different steps of concept validation but so much of it is really like creating a unified vision amongst the team that everyone can refer back to yep. through every stage yeah you know of the process yep so identifying early adopters yes let's talk about that so how would you go about identifying early adopters yeah how would you recommend and again both in a like a brand new startup you have no customers mm -hmm. and then a you know a more established company um, environment yeah like how do you decide yeah so anytime I'm working with um, a company that's just starting out that probably comes to me with their own wireframes and they just want to start building and then I they agree to do research which is awesome 
first step is to figure out who these early adopters are. And the challenge a lot of people have is like, where do I find these people? If I really do want to go interview people, how am I going to find them? And first of all, I would say the gut reaction for people is just to talk to friends and family. Well, that's number one, talk to friends and family. And I think that's dangerous because they they're your friends and family and they're, yeah, they're too like, this close is great to everything's you. great yeah and they're just going to uh, see everything through rose-colored glasses and probably not be frank and and honestly they're probably not your customer you know maybe they are but they're not your normal customer because they're your friends and they're your family um the other thing i would avoid for early adopters is doing what is dubbed the coffee shop test, um, which a lot of teams do. And sometimes teams take like wireframes to Starbucks or just go randomly interview people. Actually, I was at a coffee shop across the street, like doing work, and there were these two girls kind of trolling. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, this seems out of place. And then they walked over to me and they said, we're students from whatever college can we do some research with you? So I didn't tell them I do research or anything. I just let them do it. But at the end, I wanted to say to them, like, this is totally useless. How do you have a clue that I am remotely the person you know, you're the looking person. for? Yeah, they the didn't audience. even ask my name or anything. So I didn't tell them that. But that's why you shouldn't do this coffee shop research, because you don't know who you're talking to. You're just blind. Um, but where do you find these people? OK. I find them um, online, so I rely a lot on basically trolling where people hang out online. So let's say this is a travel product, for mm -hmm. example. I would start trolling um, travel forums, which sounds so 1990s, but it still exists. If you look at the activity on TripAdvisor, it's crazy. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'd look at forums or um, popular blogs, Facebook groups are so popular right now, and the quality of content in there is amazing. Um, maybe there's Slack channels for travel. I don't know, but I would go meet people where they are. Then I, the question of surveys comes up, and I think you could then ask the people in these groups to write a survey or participate in a survey because at least they're somewhat qualified. But the tricky thing with um, surveys, I think, is that it doesn't have the opportunity for you to go follow up and dig deeper with people because not everyone is going to write, you know, three paragraphs in an open-ended input field. So if you really want to use surveys, I would say... Maybe get their contact information. Yeah, get their contact information and, like, use a survey. I just, I just said this on a class I was teaching earlier this week. I said... If you really want to do a survey, do a survey, go big in terms of audience there, and then let that survey kind of shine a spotlight on the people that you would really want to follow up one-on-one -on -one with, and then there's your set of people to do one-on-one -on -one interviews with. Yeah. Um, so that's how I go find the early adopters, really. And I guess for a product that is already in market, um, hopefully you could go to like your customer service team or your um, audience development team or whoever kind of like is in charge of users and find out like who are the most active users or who are the users that write in the most with feedback and find like your really vocal people 
and use them to um, be a starting point to do some research if you're already a market. Yeah. What do you think about incentives? Because I definitely have talked to some people who are for incentives and I've definitely talked to some people who are like, no, 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 you're just going to bias the results. I mean, I have always done incentives because I just think, especially if it's, um, well, for one-on-one interviews, I do incentives because I think you're asking someone to take an hour of their time to come and do this. So I just... I feel kind of cheap if I don't offer them something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a good gesture on the part of the um, company. Leaves like a good brand impression for that person if you end up revealing who the company is. Yeah, even with established products or or with with both. With both. And I mean, you know, the amount of money that you give people ranges so much. Um, But I think like even $25 is still nice, Mm -hmm. you know? But nothing just feels cheap to me. And um, it doesn't have to be like cash. It could be a gift card or something like that. But for something that's more group setting, like I've done these focus groups where we gather eight or ten people. It's really informal. And it's not as, I guess, intense. It's not one-on-one, so it's more casual. And um, for those, I don't offer anything normally but sometimes it's like over drinks so that's the incentive to Mm -hmm. come and like you can have a few glasses of wine or beer or something like that um hopefully not too many but (laughs) (laughs) that you know or feed them or something yeah but I think like for one-on-ones because that's so much more intense and Mm -hmm. not work but you know what I mean it's just different than showing up and having a casual discussion with eight people yeah and have you found that offering incentives brings in different people than when you don't offer incentives um well honestly I've always offered incentives so yeah but I will say um in terms of the different types of people that come in so I've used and tell me if we're jumping ahead but I've used professional recruiting firms Um, who have like databases of people that they will kind of mine through to find the ideal people for you Mm -hmm. to talk to for your specific research project. Also, I've put listings up on Craigslist Mm -hmm. um, or um, LinkedIn groups or Facebook groups and things like that. And cross my fingers, I've never had like a total reject off craigslist in reject in terms of like not finding anyone exactly you know so i think that goes into the quality of the description you put up and the kind of like qualifications of the person that you want to talk to so what's the recruiting service that you use um so i use one called um respondent.io I'll get you the link I think they're based in New York City but yeah I had to use them um last August to do some recruiting for an e-commerce company I was I was working with and um the challenge was that we had to do research in New York and Stockholm and I had no idea what to do in Stockholm yeah yeah and good thing I knew about these guys because um I tried Craigslist in Stockholm and it's not as popular over there, but these guys that responded were able to do an amazing recruit in Stockholm and everyone showed up, no one canceled. It was, I was blown away. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And it was really, it was much, much more affordable than like a giant, like huge research firm that's been around for 30 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good tip. 
Um, okay, so maybe let's jump into the next stage, which is validating your hypothesis. Yes. So hopefully when you go into doing research, you have some idea of the problem that you want to explore with these people. And so the goal of doing the research is to find out, is this really a problem that people have? And to do that, I mean, I find that it comes best just with these one-on-one interviews. And the goal is really, let's continue with the travel example. So the goal in this one-on-one interview about travel is to do two things. First of all, get a really good understanding of this person's just day-to-day life and like a holistic view of who they are. So things like, what do they do for a job? Do they have a family? What do they do in their downtime? What's their relationship with technology? Are they super crazy about privacy or not? Do they, you know, love the iPhone or do they have like a basket for it and they never let it in their home or something, you know, (laughs) like what is their relationship with technology? And I spend a little time doing that because that is going to give me a lot of interesting insights to use later. Um, But after I get a glimpse of who they are, then I dive into the industry or problem. So travel. And the goal there is to start asking questions, not leading questions, but questions that are going to show you um, if this is a real problem for them. So um, yeah, I feel like that's one area that can sometimes be tricky is like uh, figuring out how much of a pain point it is without directly asking about it, right? Yeah. Because you don't want them to know exactly what you're doing because right. it will obviously bias the yep. the response that you get. But you also don't want to be too like vague because you might leave the conversation and be like, well, is it a problem? Right. You know? No, you want to get, you want to be able to have them just start going on and on about this problem without asking them if it's a problem. Yeah. So let me explain. How I would do that, let's... Yeah, and if you have a specific yeah, story. Yeah, let's set up a scenario where we're researching um, travel. And we have an idea that when people go on trips together, maybe not with their spouse, but like with friends or something, that process of planning the trip and agreeing on, let's say, things to do or itineraries and stuff, that's always a mess. And I've traditionally done that in the combination of Google Docs and email and this and that. And it's just messy so let's assume that's a problem we want to solve like planning group travel um how i would go about that is in a one-on-one interview i would ask questions well i would not ask when you've gone on a trip with friends did you think it was hard to do x y and z you know (laughs) don't ask that what you want to ask is um what was the last trip you took and then they'll tell you and then maybe it was on their own maybe it was other people And if it wasn't with other people, then I would follow up and say something like, do you ever travel with your friends? And then hopefully they're going to say yes. And then that can just naturally lead into this conversation of, oh, well, where did you go? Oh, you guys went to um, Brazil. That's interesting. How'd you go about planning the trip? And that, how did you go about planning the trip? That question, that's just going to open up. a great conversation because they're going to probably start telling you things like we used Airbnb or we did this or did that. And then you can just start asking follow up questions that are probably going to uncover these problems without directly asking. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, totally. How do you I mean, I think that's 
it's so valuable even to just like workshop your interviews with other researchers. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think is sometimes difficult for me is uh, gauging the level of pain uh, that a certain problem brings up. You know what I mean? Because someone might be like, oh yeah, this is such a hassle. Mm -hmm. But it's sometimes difficult to be like, okay, is this a hassle like, you know, the worst? Or is it like just a little bit inconvenient? Right, right. So, I mean, I think the reason that I love to do one-on-one -on -one interviews in person is because first of all like you can really gauge just by someone's body language and like energy not to sound all woo woo but like you can tell differently in person than if you're talking to them over Skype or just on the phone and not even seeing their face you know so I think you can rely a little bit on that to gauge the level of pain but I think when something is really a pain point people naturally start offering up the byproduct of what um, happened. So for example, with travel, if they say, um, if they're talking about how they planned this group travel, maybe they're going to bring up how they had too many things on their list to do. And therefore they like got to Brazil and spent every morning, like two hours at a coffee shop trying to figure out each, what to do each day. Or they never got to do the things they wanted to do because their friend always trumped their decisions. But I think like, if it's a true, true problem, people are naturally going to spend much more time telling you about it because like people really at the core, them. when you can get people talking about their problems, they'll just go on and on and on. It's the same with your friends, you know? So if you can lead, lead not lead them, if you can guide them through questions and then have them start to just like peel back the layers for you, it'll become pretty obvious, I think. Yeah. Have you had an experience where, you know, you've kind of gone through this, um, you've gone through this process and you've, you know, found out like, oh no, this isn't a problem at all. We shouldn't make this product or like, we need to pivot. Yes. And here's how. Yeah. So I did um, some research for, um, how should I phrase this? Um, an educational institution, let's say. Mm -hmm. And there we did a lot of travel for this research interviewed a lot of different people and the result was that no one really needed this product that they had an idea for and so a lot of people have said to me like what happens when you realize there's not a need how do you tell that back to the client and i mean it's never fun to be the bearer of bad news and tell people like no one really has this problem therefore you you don't need to make this but you have to because it's your job. And so in presenting that type of discovery, you have to be really sensitive because probably these people are emotionally attached to the idea. Yeah, they're they, making this big investment with yeah, you. Yeah, they're paying money to do research. And before they engage with you, they've probably spent months or years thinking about this and, you know, getting more and more attached. And so you have to be really tactful when you tell them what um, – that people don't want it. So what I did in that scenario is we created a whole like findings presentation. And in the findings presentation, I always have, you know, the major insight that we have, but then back it up with evidence. So it's like this many people said this, or we heard this in every single interview, or if we were, if we were doing usability tests or something, which we didn't in this, but if we were, I would use, um, like video showing people not able to do something, but you want to always support that 
that insight with evidence. Otherwise, people won't buy it because they'll just say, well, you know, my cousin still thinks this is a good idea and my colleague does and they're not the user. <laughs> um, but in that scenario, we knew probably that this guy was still going to go ahead and make this regardless. So we said to him in our in our presentation, like, look, if you really want to do this, here's what you should do to validate the idea. So we made a few recommendations of how they could do this product in its minimum, minimal, minimal format and then get and on a low budget and then get it out there and prove to themselves if people wanted it or not. Mm -hmm. So we didn't just put up a big stop sign and say, like, don't do this. Well, I guess we kind of did, but we also gave them an alternative knowing that they were probably still go ahead with it. Yeah. What have you found to be most compelling for people? Because, you know, like you said, we like we all get really attached to our ideas, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, it's like this is the most brilliant thing I've ever thought of. Yep. It's got to be in the world. But what have you found to be most compelling um, when you're presenting your findings either for or against like do you for example when you're doing these interviews do you always make sure to have like the designer or like all the stakeholders like listening to the interviews or like uh, you know what I mean like how do you get people kind of like involved in that research process or like bought into it right so there's two parts to that question let's assume that everyone has happily agreed to do the research but I think you're referring to like once you have the findings how do you make people believe it because a lot of people could just say well how do you know that's true you know yeah my cousin still thinks it's a great mm -hmm. idea so what going back to that thing I said earlier of for every insight you have to back it up with a ton of evidence and so that evidence is going to come from what you heard and saw in the interviews so when I'm doing an interview normally there's two of us and one person is kind of leading the discussion and the other person is writing notes. Um, I could talk forever about note taking, but the, the goal is that um, you're, I always try and pull out like quotes that would be really powerful. So I find as evidence, quotes are really, really powerful. Um, I was researching something in the financial space concerning um, financial like advisors and brokers. And this one guy said something along the lines of, I'll paraphrase, um, wow, I just realized I spend more time researching a dog hotel than I do my financial advisor. Oh my and gosh. obviously we used that quote in the presentation because it was so, so powerful. And so whenever we're doing interviews, I'm always listening for those because after six or eight people, it all just jumbles together. So I'm looking for those really powerful quotes. I'm also looking for something, themes that people say over and over and over. I mean, like in each interview. Mm -hmm. um, also, if we do hop on websites, um, I try and record the screen, but also the person's face. So that if we play it back to people, um, they can see that facial Emotion. reaction. Yeah, and that is really powerful. It's much more powerful than just seeing like a screen capture of a heat map or something like that. Although that's powerful too. Um, what else? Okay, another idea. Actually, uh, a friend I know told me this. She had a developer set it, sit in with her and take notes while she conducted the interview. And I thought that was really smart because she'd said the developer was kind of skeptical of research and she thought it'd be an interesting way to 
get him like in real time to experience this. And she said it went so well. He learned so much and had this like whole new respect for what she does. And he believed it because he heard it right then and there. Um, I would say, though, so I guess there's the question of like, do you who do you bring to the interview? Yeah, because I think a lot of people when they hear research, uh, user research, they think like, OK, we have to go to some big facility and rent it out and then we're going to bring our whole team and order bad Chinese food and sit in this room and watch these people for eight hours. And like that's kind of not how to do it. Um, I think it's just awkward for everyone involved. But I would say if you can bring, like this girl did, have someone take the notes or just have one or two people observe, um, that's helpful. But I think if you do have people observe, I don't tell the participant that those people have anything to do with the company. I just say like, oh, they're shadowing me as I do some research today or something so that the person doesn't know like the founders in the room or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't feel bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that can be one of the most um, one of the most difficult parts of research is just getting people on board or like understand or, you know, really bought into the process. Because mm-hmm. I think once you once you get involved with the process, it's so addictive because you're like, wow, I find like I understand like, right. this is who I'm here to serve. And if what I'm trying to do doesn't serve them, then we need to pivot. Right. You know, and I think that can be so powerful. Um, Okay, so there are a couple more things that you discussed in your article, um, and I think some of them are more obvious, like discover the workarounds people have made or learn about competitor products. Yeah. Um, You also mentioned exploring underserved customers. Yes. So does that happen when you're, you know, like identifying the early adopters or like how do you find these underserved customers and figure out where they're being underserved? Sure. So I think that falls into a little bit of the early adopter thing. Um, There, I would say... What you're going to learn from these underserved people is probably not what you are going to build in the first or second version of your product. But what you learn from these people are things that you could put on your roadmap. So back to that travel example, like let's say we had the idea that there was going to be group travel with, um, you know, people 25 to 44 who are traveling in, I don't know, groups of five or something like that. And in our research, maybe we might learn that there's people that really love to travel in groups who are also really into fitness or something or food. I don't know what it is, but like they almost have these themed trips they do and go on. And so that if we heard that over and over, that would be an indication like, okay, maybe that's a whole market we could serve. We don't want to do it right now. Because if we build really great group travel tools, we can then just slightly pivot it to cater to the fitness travelers or the food travelers or whatever. Yeah. So I think it's more about kind of looking to the future, um, but also having the discipline not to let that distract you from the you know first version that you're gonna launch yeah I love I love 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 that you call that out because I think at least for me that's one of the biggest uh just kind of one of the things that can be most tricky when you're doing product development because you're like I'm so excited about all of these things let's do all of this mm-hmm. at once and um you said something in your article that I love <laughs> you said um 
iteration iteration without research is a recipe for lots of features and launches that are over budget and delivered late yeah and I that just resonated with me so much because I think it's I, it just is true right like I think we've all been in a situation where you get so excited and you're working on everything and it takes a forever and um yeah and and I think that research really what one of the things that I love about it so much is just how much it unifies your team mm -hmm. around that vision of okay here's the here's the person who has this problem and here's how we can help them right um and it's just so powerful well it's I totally agree with that and I think it really helps to humanize the whole product development process because I think a lot of teams just end up getting really focused on like okay we have to look at this timeline and now we have two weeks to do this and this is developer access capacity so we're going to do these three things this week you know and in that meeting there was no mention of the user and a lot of times i mean i can think of times when i've been in meetings and there's a big debate about should we have a feature or should we not and there's never the question of okay, how does this feature help Sally solve that problem that she had of X, you know? But I think if you can integrate your research findings and the user into those meetings, and this could sound totally cheesy, but like say, okay, we talked to Sally or whoever, and they said this, like this feature is not solving anything they had, any problems they had. So why the heck are we doing it? You know, and almost involve them. It's almost like Have they're a the jury or something, you yeah. know? Yeah, because then that'll help you get out of the habit of people saying in meetings, I think this, I think that. I showed my kids the wireframes and they didn't like them. And yeah. it's like opinion wars can just be so yes. time consuming. And it's like a snowball. Once, once one person decides to like start talking about their coffee shop research they did, I did have a guy once go show his wireframes for a like very technical product to his children <laughs> who were like under 12 years old and they didn't like the homepage. And I was just thinking to myself, what do I do with this, you know? And so if we'd had... I don't remember it was so long ago, but if we had had um, personas or like research and been able to say, well, actually, John, this isn't our the audience. developer <laughs> in Seattle, really needs to know this, you know, it would have just put that conversation to bed. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, there's so many reasons that I love research, but I think I was, um, I was having a conversation with someone and he's, you know, made the remark that research not only makes better products, but it makes better people. Ah, uh, and it, I like that. it just, it, yeah. And I, I thought, man, that is so true because so often in product development, you can get caught up in these opinion wars or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think research can just be this very like unifying, empowering experience for everyone on the team from yeah. the developer to the designer to the PM to um, to everyone and, and I love that about it yeah so um, I, I think we're about to wrap up but I would love to hear I know you're putting together a UX research course yeah so I would love to kind of just you know let everyone hear a little bit about that okay so yeah I actually launched this research course two days ago which is oh. super exciting and now I'm in the delicate phase of <laughs> seeing how it goes and realizing everything I messed up but 
how did I come up with this idea? So basically last this year, last time or this time last year, I ran a 90 minute workshop on user research. A lot of people were asking me about it. So I did that. And the feedback was, that was great. Can you make it four weeks? Because a lot of people wanted to be able to not just consume all that information, but be able to take some of the information in and then go do like step one of a research project and then come back and learn the next step. And I never thought of that, but it's a great example of how I used research to build this research project. Mm -hmm. So research course. So for the last eight or 10 months or so, I've been building this out, prototyping it at different events and things like that. Um, And yeah, now the goal is really that this course will help UX designers, UX researchers, founders, developers really have like a, a blueprint that they can use to go and do their first research project or do their second and learn how to do it right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's um, a ton of videos. I think there's 22 videos. Oh, wow. And then we have, so it's not taught live because I decided just with time zones, it's a nightmare. So you can binge all the videos all you want. But I still wanted to have kind of one-on-one time with people. So sprinkled throughout the four weeks, we do um, live office hours for people. So, and it's group, but that gives everyone a chance to come back and say, well, I didn't understand this, or I went and did this, and what do you think I should do next? And just get feedback, not from me, but just from other students as well. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week to hear from another thought leader in the industry. Suggest topics you'd like to have covered or individuals you're interested in hearing from through our Slack group, found under the community tab at mix-methods.org. See you next week.